Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton's new renovation bylaw continues to make waves. I'm also chewing on the city's police budget, the cap on foreign students, Trudeau's retreat, childlessness, and a unique side dish. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, Hamilton councillors gave preliminary approval to a new bylaw that aims to protect tenants against being evicted for renovations. You've heard the term renovations. Councilor Brad Clark, one of many who at the time hoped that they can rein in an abusive process. Within the confines of the province of Ontario, this is the way we can do it. This bylaw that we have adopted, we can do. Will we be challenged? It's quite possible. But I sincerely believe that the way it is crafted it is defensible. When it takes effect next January, it's going to require landlords to file applications with the city for renovation licenses within a week of issuing an N13 notice to tenants to vacate the units because they want to renovate that unit. I want to know, is this going to ultimately help with affordability? Brian Doucette is a Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion and Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Brian, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Always good to be on the show. From an affordability standpoint, is this going to move the needle at all? It is. It it should really make a, a difference. If we think not just about a renovation leads to an eviction of a tenant, but it actually leads to the loss of a housing unit that is affordable. When I was at, at council last week hearing all the delegations, you know, one tenant shared that they were in a building where the rent jumped from 500 to 1700 when the unit was empty because of, of the rent eviction. And that is very common. So this doesn't just benefit the individual renter involved. It benefits everyone looking for affordable housing, genuinely affordable housing. When a tenant is displaced, even for a renovation that, you know, is not considered to be um, uh, being done by a bad actor, like this is a legitimate renovation, perhaps the pice burst, whatever the, the scenario is, when a tenant is displaced, they're now forced to look elsewhere, which, you know, has an impact on supply. Because if they're moving into somewhere else, that means one less place for another individual. From that standpoint, does this bylaw do what it's going to be intended to do? Well, I think one of the key things that the bylaw is meant to do is actually ensure that the right that tenants now have, that is the right to return to their unit, to their home, once renovation work is uh, is completed, that tenants can actually exercise that right. So right now, tenants, as I said, have the right to return to their apartments once renovation work is done at roughly the same rent. But the onus of responsibility to exercise that right, right, to actually be able to return under the current rules is solely and squarely placed on the shoulders of tenants. And not only that, but they also need to find their own accommodation during the renovation work. They have no help from the landlord whatsoever. That relationship between landlord and tenant is severed. And the great thing about this proposed bylaw is that it binds the landlord and tenant together throughout the whole process. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Professor Brian Doucette from the University of Waterloo, also the Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion. We're talking about Hamilton's renovation bylaw. We spoke um, afterwards, after this decision was made at City Council, we spoke with uh, Daniel Chin. He's the president of the Hamilton District Department Association. And while he understands why this is going forward, uh, he's also intimating that, listen, there are a lot of um, good faith landlords out there who are making these renovations who are going to be penalized by this licensing fee and the the suggestion is that a lot of these landlords are going to are going to think I can't pay $715 per unit to renovate it I'm just going to leave it in disrepair is is there a worry from that standpoint I don't think that's a a big concern um I I think if you are a good landlord, if you want to maintain the investment property that you own, you you want to take care of it, right? Uh, No one would say, well, I'm not going to, you know, maintain something else that I own because I want to see it potentially drop in value, right? Um, And let's return to that starting point that even when good faith renovations need to take place, the the rules now clearly state that the tenant has the right to return to that unit and that should be the starting point of any conversation and what the bylaw is trying to do is ensure that tenants can return so any conversation about renovations and rental properties should start with that premise that no one should be forced to permanently leave their home because the owner of that unit or that building wants to renovate and they and they they can return at the same rate right Yes, that's the idea, that it should not fall on the, the rent burden, should not fall on the tenant. And that's also why this bylaw has mechanisms in place to ensure that if a tenant does need to leave, if a qualified expert such as an engineer has said, yes, the renovation work is so extensive that someone needs to vacate the, their, their home, that the landlord still has a responsibility to their tenants. So if they own other properties, they can find another unit in one of those other properties for them. If they if they can't, they provide a rental top-up roughly bet- between what the tenant was paying and the average market rent, which means, again, the tenant is not financially burdened because a landlord wants to renovate. We got a minute left. Do you think that this is going to catch like wildfire? I mean, this has made headlines across the country or other, at least other Ontario cities taking note. This is a conversation that has been happening in other communities. Um, I'd say Hamilton was first largely because Acorn Hamilton was really pushing for this and really working hard. And there were a number of councillors who really championed the idea. But this is a conversation happening right across the province, right across the country. And here where I live in Kitchener-Waterloo, we are having discussions about it. We are having Uh, housing advocates pushing councillors. We're having councillors champion things. We're going to see more of these. And ultimately what we want to see is like what happened in British Columbia after New Westminster introduced their anti-renoviction bylaw in 2019. Two years later, they repealed it. Not because it was unsuccessful. It it basically ended renovations there. But the province amended their own rules to bring that kind of legislation in province-wide. And that's absolutely what we need in Ontario. We'll see if it happens in the not-too-distant future. Brian, thanks for the time this morning. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Brian Doucette, Canada Research Chair in Urban Change and Social Inclusion, also an Associate Professor in the School of Planning at the University of Waterloo. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. New research is out that shows that even if police budgets increase, it may not reduce the crime rate in cities 
in this country. This was a University of Toronto-led study. It was published in Canadian Public Policy. And it found no correlation between police funding and crime rates in 20 large municipalities in this country, including here in Hamilton, Toronto, Montreal, Winnipeg, Vancouver. And this comes as Hamilton Police just yesterday presented its budget to City Council requesting a 6.8% or just over $13 million funding increase. And Chief Frank Bergen said... The increase is driven almost entirely by salaries, benefits, and other employee-related costs. Melanie Seabrook is the lead author of this study, a researcher at the Upstream Lab at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Melanie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. How are you? I'm good. Did you expect to find this result? Um, That's a good question. I think we kind of uh, approached the study with a a bit of an understanding that it's a very complex issue. And so we didn't have kind of a specific result that we were expecting. I think we were uh, kind of guessing that we wouldn't see a a strong correlation between the two. But um, yeah, I mean, from our results, we didn't see consistent correlations across Canada. um, and, And they did vary a lot. Um, across the municipalities. Were there any municipalities that show that an increase in spending did correlate into a lower crime rate, or was this across the board a big fat no? Uh, There were a couple um, municipalities that did have a negative correlation, which would um, kind of indicate that uh, correlation between increase in police funding and uh, a reduction in crime rates. There were also a couple municipalities that had a positive correlation Um, between the two. So an increase in police spending was correlated with an increase in crime rates. Um, So that's what I mean. And uh, like most of the correlations that we saw that we calculated were not statistically significant. Um, So the few that I just mentioned were, but um, overall they weren't. And that's what I mean when when I say there's such a wide variation in the type of relationship or potential relationship between police funding and crime rates across these uh, 20 cities. Was police funding in this study solely directed at the number of officers on the street and the number of officers that could respond to emergencies? Or was this an overall police budget and how it related to where the crime Mm -hmm. rate was at? Yes. So this uh, we were looking at the the overall uh, expenditures on policing in each municipality. So looking at municipal budgets. So when it comes to, and I know police from time to time will have special units, uh, dedicated officers to whatever priorities they set in their community. Do you break Mm -hmm. it down as far as that goes as well? Um, Unfortunately, we uh, weren't able to go into that level of detail for this study. You know, um, there isn't a lot of research on police funding in Canada. So our goal with this study was just to kind of get a lay of the land of how much is being spent on policing over time? How does that vary across Canada? But I think future research should definitely try and dig into uh, that and break down how much is being spent on different police functions. But I will say that uh, the main challenge we had with this study was accessing data on police expenditures. And I know that that's also a challenge in terms of um, breakdown of uh, police expenditures by function. Um, So... Yeah, I would say that uh, it's a challenge and I'd recommend that municipalities and and police services try and make their uh, financial data more uh, publicly accessible and accessible to researchers, you know, just for for transparency with the public on on police on public finances uh, and also to enable this type of research.
research to be done. Why is it so hard to get that information? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer for you. Um, I think that uh, different municipalities just uh, don't necessarily publish their more historical um, budgets and financial statements uh, publicly. Um, maybe they're archived for whatever reason. Um, but really, it is important to have that historical uh, financial statements uh, to be able to do this long term analysis and, and be able to do that correlation uh, analysis over time, right? Because we need a lot of data to be able to, um, you know, come to the, that type of a conclusion. Mm -hmm. Were there any other, was there a baseline for this study? Were there similar studies in the U.S. or in Europe or elsewhere in the world that kind of showed the same situation? So uh, there's a lot more research in the U.S. Um, there are a couple Canadian studies that have also looked at uh, correlation between uh, crime rates and police funding or police strength. Uh, so one of them also similarly didn't find uh, an association between police funding and uh, uh, crime rates. Uh, the other one found, uh, I believe, a, an association between police funding and violent crime rates. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, like I said, there's uh, very little research on it in Canada. Um, some of the research in the States have uh, kind of shown that uh, a positive association or correlation between the two. So increase in police resources leading to increased crime rates just because there's more police recording crimes. Right. So it's kind of that uh, bias in, in data collection on crime rates. Um, so, yeah, it's a very complex issue. And there's, yeah, uh, sounds like know, it. Very, yeah, sorry. Melanie, I'll jump in because we're out of time. I really appreciate your oh, time sure. this morning. Thank you so much. Melanie Seabrook, uh, lead author of this study. Really compelling stuff. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The federal government announcing that over the next two years, they are preventing international students from coming to Canada, a two-year cap. Immigration Minister Mark Miller announcing these new limits yesterday, including a temporary cap that is going to reduce the number of new student visas by 35% this year. It is the latest in a series of measures to improve program integrity, set international students up for the success in order to maintain a sustainable level of temporary residence in Canada as well. There were more than 807,000 permit holders in this country in 2022, a nearly 31% hike compared to 2021, and more than half of those students, more than half of that 807,000 were in Ontario. Karen Littlewood is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation and joins us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Karen, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. You are placing a lot of the blame on the Ontario government. Why? <laughs> well, I want to start off by saying we should not be blaming the students. And a lot of what's happened, students end up feeling like they're responsible for this. In Ontario, we really do have a crisis in education, not just at elementary and secondary, but also in post-secondary, where the government is underfunding and shortchanging students. But they are really, in this case, shortchanging students from all over the world. And this has a ripple effect because Ontario, from what I've uh, researched, last per student when it comes to per student funding for university and college education, which is forcing these schools, McMaster University, Mohawk College here locally, to rely on higher international tuition fees to make their budget. 
that, that's exactly what's happening. So, you know, to put it in the simplest terms for your listeners, it costs a lot of money to run a university. You have a wonderful university in Hamilton. My sister graduated from Mac. I graduated from Laurentian, and they are already in dire financial straits. Um, you know, people might say, why is the president of a teachers' union talking about universities? We represent about 3,000 members at Algoma, Brock, St. Paul's, University of Ottawa, Wilfrid Bay, Guelph. You know, and, and these institutions have seen the decline in funding from the Ford government for tuition, and the only way that they can make ends meet is to look at outside sources, and the most profitable outside source for the last number of years has been international students. When you consider a student at Mac probably pays an undergrad student about 6000 a year in tuition, it's a similar program for an international student, they're paying $30,000. So, you know, when the government is not providing the money for the institutions to continue to run, government universities have full departments where they are looking to seek international students to come in to make up that shortfall. So now that we're going to have this cap, and it's for the next two years, you already referenced that some post-secondary schools have been culling their programming due to budget constraints. Do you fear that this is going to kill some 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 more education jobs. Oh, it's absolutely going to reduce programs, limit opportunities. You know, you can't take away the funding source, and sadly, the funding source right now in Ontario and universities is students. Students are funding the universities, not the government. You know, I heard a stat recently that for colleges, students from India put more money into the college system than the government of Ontario does. <laughs> I don't think it should be like that in a profitable province like Ontario. Some countries around the world have fully free tuition for everyone, but the only way they can keep their institutions running is through funding from the government. We've heard that uh, Ontario's Ministry of Colleges and Universities is expected to provide more information on how this cap is going to affect post-secondary institutions. I think, I mean, we've just kind of talked about it, how we believe it's going to impact, and it's going to have a dire one. Do you think this is going to force a change in the system and in the funding system? So Minister Dunlop is from my area. I'm from Barrie. She's from Aurelia. I would love her to come up with an announcement saying, you know what, we're going to give a boost to the universities so they can continue to deliver world-class programming. I don't think that's going to be the case. What I don't want, like I said off the top, I don't want students to be blamed, but I also want our universities to have the money that they need to provide that programming. You know, not everybody chooses a university or college pathway. We've got many pathways for students um, after they finish with the public education system in Ontario. But right now, um, the international students are making up for the shortfall from government, and that has an impact when that funding source is taken away. We have a couple more minutes with Karen Littlewood, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. We're talking about international students in the new cap that is going to be put in place starting this year for the next two years on the number of foreign students coming to our nation. I'm going to guess that this is going to have a big impact on domestic students who might be asked to dig a little deeper to fund their education. What do you think? Well, the problem is the tuition, the government has said that universities can't raise their tuition rates for students who are domestic students. So where is the money going to come from in order to keep the programs running? You were right when you said programs will be cut, and these are programs that are world-class programs. Each university has its own special program that they've worked really hard to develop. And sadly, in some cases now, universities are looking for corporate funding 
it, it's, it's a slow lead into privatization as well in our university systems. And I think Ontarians need to be really concerned about that. It is a uh, concerning situation for sure. Karen, thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me on, Rick. Have a great day. Karen Littlewood is the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation offering her thoughts on this temporary cap to the number of international students who will be allowed to come to Canada. We reached out to a number of institutions yesterday, heard from the Colleges of Institutes Canada. that says the cap, quote, will have far-reaching consequences across the sector, especially in key regions, including the possibility of layoffs, closures, and increased tuition fees. And in a statement, Mohawk College President Ron McCurley writes, international students are integral, valued contributors to our classrooms, communities, and economy. And all these post-secondary institutions are now waiting on the minister to provide a roadmap going forward. Tuitions have been frozen. We have now this new cap on foreign students. We know that universities and colleges are looking at the programming and thinking, well, we can't make that happen. We can't pay this instructor, this professor, this associate professor for something that is just not going to materialize because we don't have the funding that is now coming in from these international students. How this system looks going forward is going to be extremely interesting. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is a retreat going on right now. Federal Liberal Party retreating its cabinet, holding a retreat in Montreal. And they are discussing, well, the biggest issues of the day that is impacting Canadians. Housing's got to be in there. Canada-U.S. relations, the top of the chart. Foreign affairs, certainly on the agenda. But can this cabinet, can this party regain what it once had? Daniel Perry is a senior consultant of public affairs at Hill and Knowlton and joins us on GMH on 900 CHML. Mr. Perry, good morning. Morning, Rick. On the agenda today, from what I understand, is global affairs in the looming U.S. presidential election. And maybe we'll start with global affairs because mm-hmm. we have a war in Gaza, we have a war in Ukraine, we have complaints from some NATO members, we have mm-hmm. election interference involving China. Uh, not much to talk about here. No, very, very quiet for our discussion. I think it'll be very, very quick. No, it's a very busy time on the international scene. And it really shows that Canada and that the government is eager to participate, as well as think about Canada's role in the international community, especially as it relates to the economy. Uh, With the U.S. election coming up in the fall, there is a possible real challenge to trade. And that's Canada's biggest trading partner. It's important that the Canadian government gets that relationship right. When it comes to, and let's go beyond North America, when it goes mm-hmm. to those global affairs, the, the foreign affairs policy, mm-hmm. are we expecting any sort of switch to come? I don't think so. I think really what the focus of this retreat is, is on the domestic side about affordability, uh, about having communities become safer and helping the middle class. I think right now the government's main focus is on how to woo back voters uh, within Canada and how they can kind of regain their position in the polls. Cost of living is huge. We ran a poll question yesterday on our social media feeds. Do you think the Liberals can lower your cost of living before the next federal election? And a lot of people are pessimistic. 79% said no, they don't think that's going to be the case. This has to be the number one issue, right? 
Oh, it absolutely is. And even in press conferences leading up into uh, the retreat, the Minister of Innovation, Science and Technology, who's responsible for lowering grocery prices, talked about his commitment to doing that and ensuring Canadians have some more affordability when they go through the grocery store. And I think that's going to be very central to the Liberals in this upcoming sitting of Parliament is talking about it, uh, the issues of affordability and how they're tackling it. Because even if you ask them in 2023, they really dropped the ball on that. And housing is a big part of this, too. And we know mm -hmm. that there's a, an accelerator fund. We know announcements yeah. have been made. Mm -hmm. Has it resonated with Canadians, though? If you ask Canadians, especially if you look at the recent poll from Abacus Data or Nanos, it, it hasn't. And that's why the government has brought experts into uh, into the cabinet retreat to talk about these issues and how they can better frame it. Uh, pardon the pun there, and how they can really kind of talk to Canadians and find those tangible solutions. Because no matter if you're a renter or, or looking to enter the market or even own a house, you're having a hard time paying your bills. And Canadians really recognize that. And the government, I would say, is looking to kind of change the narrative that they're not doing anything on that because they believe that they are. We're talking about uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's cabinet retreat in Montreal over the next uh, couple of days with uh, Daniel Perry, Senior Consultants, Public Affairs with Hill and Knowlton. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. You mentioned domestic foreign policy. There mm -hmm. appears to be um, a Trump-Biden presidential rematch later mm -hmm. on this year. Is this a hot topic within cabinet? Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the reasons why it's on the agenda this time around. And I think the reason why the government added it is because, again, they're worried about the impact that it might have on, on the Canadian economy as the biggest partner to Canada in terms of our trade. The, the ports need to stay open. The border needs to flow with goods. So if there might be a change in tides or if America gets tougher on uh, free trade, like we saw under previous administrations, the Canadian government is concerned because that's going to impact how our manufacturing sector does business. Former President Trump is so polarizing. He has a rabid faction that's securely behind him. There are mm -hmm. others who can't stand even the sight of Mr. Trump. Does <laughs> the prime minister try to correlate that hatred for Trump with a supposed hatred for his main rival, Pierre Polyev of the Conservatives. Is there a connection that Mr. Mm -hmm. Trudeau is going to try to make? We've seen it before in previous elections that all parties try to connect to the other side. We've seen endorsements from former presidents uh, in the Canadian election cycle. So I think there is a line where that the government can make that move in comparison. Um, they've made it in the past and it's definitely something that could be in the playbook this time around. Is there anything else that Trudeau is looking in his grab bag, if you will, mm -hmm. to say, this is I got to use this to steal some support away from Polyev? I think really talking about the economy and what he's done for it, especially one of their key promises has always been that they delivered on was $10 a day childcare. They see it as a measure to get women back into the workforce because typically they're the ones to stay at home with children. And by making daycare more affordable, they're able to leverage that and add more people into the workforce. And something they, they love talking about because it's a good news story for them that they've had some success with. Uh, what do you think the mood is like in this cabinet retreat? I think it's better than what it was in past retreats. Now that it's clear an election won't be happening anytime soon, it definitely feels that the caucus and cabinet are a little bit more calm. They feel like the government will get ahead of things and the quicksand's kind of stopped and they can have a concrete plan to go forward. So you don't get the sense that are some cabinet ministers thinking, oh, this Trudeau guy's on the way out. I'm going to have to do <laughs> something for myself. I'm sure that's always a thought in people's back of their heads, but they're doing a really good job of presenting a united front right now. And I think that's something that the prime minister especially is quite happy to see.
Oh, I'm sure he is. Uh, Mr. Perry, thank you for your time this morning. <laughs> thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Daniel Perry is a senior consultant, public affairs, Hill and Knowlton. Yeah, there's quite a few things on the agenda for this liberal retreat when it comes to foreign policy, what's happening in the U.S., and what's happening here domestically with just the cost of everything going up, inflation, cost of living, food prices, yada, yada, yada. Uh, a lot of budget pressures, uh, for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a really fascinating topic because many baby boomers, and many of you are listening right now, are finding yourselves in a place that you did not think you'd be in, and that is not having any grandchildren. More and more younger couples are choosing not to have babies these days. In fact, in 2022, Canada reported its lowest birth rate in nearly 20 years. And you can imagine, you know, the, the various reasons why. The soaring cost of living, skyrocketing housing prices, the pandemic burnout, just a few of the reasons that young couples are deciding, you know what, we're not going to procreate. Some just want to live their life untethered. Laura Carroll is an internationally renowned expert on child-free choice and pronatalism, also the author of a new book that is just out called A Special Sisterhood, 100 Fascinating Women from History Who Never Had Children. Laura, good morning. How are you? Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Childlessness is, it's not a new topic. It's been around for, as you point out in your book, a, a long, long time. But is it becoming an option that more couples are considering these days? Well, 20 years ago, I did a book called Families of Two, and I looked at just that. And I interviewed over 100 couples in the United States. And uh, it definitely was something that uh, I found was happening, even though the internet at that time was not as huge as it is now. So we didn't really know about these couples. So in the last 20 years, it's become a much larger conversation for individuals and couples. And so they've kind of, we've all kind of come out of the tributaries of society and there's a lot more talk about it. And I think that's becoming a little bit more over time normalized. From the boomers perspective, and again, these are people in their 60s and 70s who have, you know, yearned one day to spoil a grandchild. Yeah. It must create a, a a void if they didn't have one or they don't have one, especially if some of their peers have grandchildren. Can you talk about that dynamic? Yes, for sure. If their peers have grandchildren and uh, the elder, you know, couple uh, uh, parents of adult children don't, it can really be kind of awkward because others' lives revolve around their grandchildren. They don't have that. So I've found with lots of child-free couples that uh, what has to happen at some point is they really need to sit down with the parents and have a talk and uh, be very clear about why they're making the decision they're making and also try to reach some kind of mutual understanding as in try to get the conversation to move towards why did you expect me to have grandchildren? You know, what is in it for you? What do you want out of that experience and why, why do you want me to provide or fulfill that expectation for you. So if that can be done with, uh, you know, in the context of uh, clarity and love, I think a lot of a lot of things can be um, understood and, and the path can move forward if, with, you know, them bonded just as well as they were before. I would imagine that this scenario has caused a lot of friction between couples and their parents who, again, have, have dreamed of being a grandparent and even even though they might have the talk to say, hey, mom and dad, I mean, we're not going down this road. It, it, As you mentioned, it must be quite awkward for the couples involved, the parents involved, um, because the expectation from the grandparents' side or the would-be grandparents is that this is going to happen because it happened to me. 
Right. And part of the conversation, I think, um, Ken, and it happened to me personally, actually, I had to talk with my mother about about why I was choosing it. And we got to the point where she had to admit that maybe she had done something wrong in parenting me such that I didn't want to grow up and do what she did. And um, what I told her is you did everything right. <laughs> you really you raised me to believe I could create the life that I wanted. And this is what I do want. And once we understood that together, um, we became bonded and we could talk about, you know, she could call me and talk to me about, oh, my friends are all they're doing is talking about their grandkids and they don't talk about me and what I'm doing. So it it it, it led us to a whole nother level. And I think a lot of people can get to that point of just there, there's some honesty involved and just trying to reach some self, you know, understanding from both parties or all parties involved. It's a great story. Uh, Laura Carroll is our guest, internationally renowned expert on child-free choice and pronatalism, also the author of a new book. You can check it out in your favorite bookstore and online, A Special Sisterhood, 100 Fascinating Women from History Who Never Had Children. I'm going to ask you a question about the book in just a second, but I want to know this. What is the big draw, maybe the biggest draw that you have found in your research on childlessness? Why are most couples saying, you know what, I, the kids are just not for me? I think that what, what it boils right down to at it, it, the core of everything is there's just not a big enough desire. So they couples may have a concern about the finances and some of these very real things in our, our world today, but uh, they don't want kids enough to find the money. They don't want kids enough to risk how it might change their marriage, et cetera. So it's their level of, you know, emotional level of desire that just is not there enough to, um, to try to, you know, to face their concerns. That's what I found in my research over 20 years. And there's a lot that, you know, on the, on the surface that does say, I do have these factors that, you know, I'm concerned about, but below that is what is my desire to really have my life revolve around parenthood? Going back to the boomers or those older would-be grandparents, there is a flip side to this. Not having grandchildren means that there's no need for babysitting or, or caregiver duties. They can live their retirement years how they want. That's really true. And that's not talked about often enough. So there's a lot of elders that when they find out they're not going to be grandparents, it opens up a wide road for the, the couple or even if they're widowers or widow to, to say, well, gee, what do I want to do in my years left? And a lot of them find a lot of great things they can do and can still do. So it's a way for also an opportunity for them to find their own type of fulfillment in their elder years that they may not have ever thought about. And it really can be quite exciting for a lot of people. Last one for you. You're the author of the new book, A Special Sisterhood, 100 Fascinating Women from History Who Never Had Children. Is there a favorite story or favorite individual that you have in that book? Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. Um, it was hard to get it to 100. There's so <laughs> many um, as I started to research the book. And the book includes, it doesn't really look at the reasons these women didn't have children. I wanted to look at the lives that they lived. So it doesn't extract, you know, would, did she really want kids and she didn't have kids? She want, didn't want them. It's just they're, they were living their lives. So um, that I don't think has been done before. And I go back all the way to 350 AD to make the point that women haven't been having children for generations. And to young people as they're trying to consider, well, what, what is right for me? This can hopefully help them in, you know, figuring out that puzzle of what's right for them, because here's examples of what can happen. You know, can, you can have a fulfilling life without having them. And here's real life examples from way, way back. 
So that was my goal. And uh, it's a really fun and uh, light and easy read and creative. It's got illustrations and uh, it's getting, you know, some really good feedback. It's a really, really fun book for everybody. Yeah, sounds like a great read. Good luck with it. And I really appreciate the time this morning. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Laura Carroll, internationally renowned expert on child-free choice and pronatalism, author of the new book, A Special Sisterhood, 100 Fascinating Women from History Who Never Had Children. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This is a very interesting story, and I'm glad to bring it to you. And big props to producer Liz for finding this one. There's a photo of a hamburger that was recently posted on social media, and this photo went viral. Not because of the hamburger, well, I mean, kind of, sort of, but more or less because of what it came with, and that was a very interesting side dish. And it wasn't french fries, it wasn't a salad, it wasn't anything you would eat. A visitor from the United States shared this photo of the burger that they ordered, along with a waiver from the restaurant at the Hilton Toronto Airport Hotel and Suites. And this wasn't a waiver because the burger was crazy spicy it read if you eat this burger which was prepared medium instead of our standard of well done we the restaurant would be free of liability if you contract a foodborne illness now the patron had already taken a bite of the burger when a server handed them the waiver which they did not sign and said they lost their appetite because they did not have the confidence in the food that the restaurant was offering Now, the hotel chain issued a statement saying, quote, when guests request a cooking temperature for meat that is below the minimum required, our hotel provides a waiver as an additional food safety measure with language consistent with what you might see printed at the bottom of restaurant menus. Joyce Lung is a Hamilton-based cooking teacher and blogger and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Joyce, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm okay. Have you seen this before? (laughs) I have never. I've worked in restaurants for over 10 years of my life, and I have never seen that ever. So I can imagine why this person lost their appetite. I mean, I've, I've never seen this either. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, like, I feel like, you know, the restaurant wants to protect themselves. I completely get that. But there's a way to do it. There's tons of restaurants out there who don't serve their burgers medium medium rare how some people like it but the server should be telling the guests hey we normally don't prepare it this way and we won't be able to so let the guests decide whether or not they want to order the burger still but cook to the way that the restaurant does it or order something else it just leaves a terrible taste i feel at the very least why not include this on the menu as opposed to issuing a waiver right like we see messages on coffee cups this is you know warning this is hot Exactly, exactly. And I, I just the, the, the way that it was delivered and then after it was delivered after the person had a bite already is wild. Like it, I feel like the, the procedure is not done properly. And I get that people think, oh, you know, publicity is publicity, but this is not good publicity <laughs> for a restaurant at all. Considering how hard like how times are for a restaurant, like this is not a good look for them. Absolutely. Joyce Lung is a Hamilton-based cooking teacher and blogger. Check out her website, JoyceofCooking.com. When it comes to cooking ground beef, whether it's in a restaurant setting or at home, medium as opposed to well done, where do we sit on this? 
I mean, it, it's a it's a personal thing. I feel like um, some people feel that they can cook it to a medium um, when they're preparing it themselves. The idea is pretty much that the ground meat, when you put it through like a grinder, um, you're exposing more surface area to bacterial growth, right? So that's why we can have a steak that is rare because we're essentially cooking both sides to a temperature that kills off everything. And the inside was never exposed, so it technically is okay to eat that way. But when you grind up the beef, it's exposing more surface area to bacteria. So, you know, if you have a super fancy restaurant that, like, specializes in medium rare or rare burgers, they're likely going to be grinding the meat themselves in the restaurant per order to ensure that it's safe. Uh, uh, You know, Hilton restaurant probably won't be doing that and to be honest most places won't be doing that so i get why the restaurant don't want to serve it this way because they probably can't ensure that the safety 100 percent for being rare or medium rare but again it's just how you deliver the message and then and this is a kind of off topic but in the same realm we also have steak tartare which is basically raw meat and and, and people yeah. are eating that yeah, so same thing. It depends on the restaurant, right? If the pre- restaurant brings in product that they confidently feel that people can eat it completely raw, or again, if they're grinding it up um, or chopping it up in that case in the restaurant, like right as you order it, then it potentially can be safe. But again, you know, never say never. You can still get sick for even if you cook the food properly. And this rule would also apply because we're talking about grinding meats, uh, you know, ground pork, ground ground veal. Yeah, exactly. And and that's why most places you won't be able to get any kind of ground um, meats like pork, veal in, in that setting as well. Like you won't be able to get it medium or medium rare at all. Do you suspect other restaurants to start issuing waivers with their burgers? I don't think so. I, 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 if people are considering it as a restaurant owner, I would highly recommend to, you know, train your staff properly, train them how to talk to the guests properly. Guests will understand if you explain to them and, and, and do it in a way where you give them plenty of time to decide what they want to order and not make them order the food and then tell them about it afterwards. Yeah, that's a good point. Joyce, really appreciate your insight into this. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Joyce Leung is a Hamilton-based cooking teacher and blogger. Check her out online, JoyceofCooking.com. That's J-O-Y-C-E of Cooking.com. It's a great website for some even meal ideas. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.